Today, our guest is Anton Musgrave. Anton is the partner of Future World and is one of the world's leading strategists and futurists and is helping C-level executives around the world to both cope with the current crisis and then to plan for the future. He tells us about his own business, Future World, and how it was impacted by COVID-19 and how they then paused, reflected, and then started to engage with their customers. Most businesses have gone through the same process and are gearing up to operate in a new post-COVID-19 era, one that will be different, but also have huge opportunities. Enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Exponential Organization podcast. I'm your host, Lance Pepler. The world is changing at an exceptional rate. Companies need to not only continue to innovate, but also grow exponentially to keep up. This podcast will introduce you to the principles of exponential growth and how you can adopt them into your business. This show is sponsored by IdeaStorm, a leading exponential growth consultancy. They can provide services ranging from an hour advisory call with a network of over 4,500 consultants worldwide through OpenEXO through to the 10-week EXO Sprint. So visit www.ideastorm.ca.za to find out more. Today, our guest is Anton Musgrave. Anton is a strategy and innovation practitioner, futurist, international keynote speaker, and executive facilitator. He's a former attorney, uh, but he's a businessman, investor, and an entrepreneur. I guess you're an attorney still, uh, Anton. Uh, he is visiting faculty on strategic thinking and innovation at London Business School, Duke CE, Oxford's and uh, Said Business School, Indian Business School of Business, and Wits University Business School. So very illustrious. Um, he is a partner of Future World International, and Future World assists businesses and business leaders around the world understand, design, and create the ideal future, creating new game-changing businesses of tomorrow. So welcome to the podcast, Anton. Thank you very much, Lance. Thanks for having me. Uh, Anton, could you give us a bit about your background? I read in your intro there that you've got an illustrious background and you, you're doing a lot. But can you just tell us a bit about your background and what brought you to where you are today? Lance, thanks very much. Uh, it's an interesting story, I guess, when I think and reflect back on it. I started out, as you mentioned, uh, as a practicing commercial lawyer with a, a large, very well-established uh, law firm in Cape Town. I think when I, uh, when I joined that, we've been around for about 112 years. Uh, so very, very well-established uh, and highly regarded. I practiced law for all of 20 years. And during that journey, around um, 1990, I read about something called the Internet. And it scared me for two reasons, Lance. The, the first one was very few of my partners had ever heard of it. And, and secondly, although it was in some, some scientific journal, I remember thinking that if this story is half real, the world will never be the same. And so I embarked on a, uh, on a journey finding someone that could tell me about this thing called the internet. Uh, believe it or not, it seems sort of strange to think about it through that lens. Um, but very few people did. Of course, email wasn't even a thing, hardly a thing in those days. And uh, I discovered IBM Consulting and a chap called Wolfgang Grulke. Uh, we retained him to do a research project on the impact of the internet on professional services. And that really triggered my curiosity in the future and what might be out there that I was totally unaware of that could shape not only my profession, but the context in which our clients did business, indeed, the way we live even. So very, very interesting trigger to my curiosity. I then went on, I, I studied some more, did a business degree, left law, joined uh, a large property uh, development and consultancy business, 
uh, throughout Africa, ran that for a few years, and, uh, and then was, I guess, seduced is the right word, by um, a friend who said they are starting a financial services business that wanted to change the rules of the game. And that concept fascinated me. You know, there was a small, just beyond startup stage business wanting to take on the giants in the South African investment world. And everyone, of course, said what they uh, wanted to achieve uh, and what the ambition was, was not possible. It wouldn't be done. It wouldn't be successful. But the power of their dream actually uh, enticed me to join them without even a formal contract of employment. And when I said to the CEO at the time, I said, what am I going to join you as? He said, I have no idea, but we just know we think alike and we'll go and do amazing things together. And even though <laughs> for 20 years I'd advised clients not to enter into deals without signed agreements, I went out and you know, put my entire career on the line. But that was a 10-year fascinating journey. I ended up as managing director of major parts of that business. Um, and we did change the rules. And the model today is what all private client wealth management businesses out there uh, are trying to achieve. Uh, of course, along that journey, I stayed in touch with the uh, guys that did the internet research. They eventually split up away from IBM and started Future World in Gibraltar uh, almost 30 years ago. Mm. And I joined initially, Lance, as a freelancer, just um, really doing keynotes at conferences on matters relating to the future as and when I could. But about 14 years ago, when I uh, retired from the corporate world and I said I wanted to invest all of my time now working with leaders around the world, sharing with them exciting and meaningful insights about the future and what it means for their organizations themselves personally, of course, their families, their children, and so forth. And that's now what I do. And I, and I do it, you know, everywhere from Siberia to China to New York and mm. London and everywhere in between. Thank you, Anton. Um, I follow you and I, I've attended some of your sessions that you've done during the coronavirus. And you, you mentioned on the, the first one that I attended that your business sort of pipeline changed dramatically before and after coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so I need to ask you around like future world, does it do? What did it do? And, and how has it changed um, since you've entered into the coronavirus? What needs do you see in the market at the moment that you're addressing? So fascinating. My own part of Future World was really uh, working with global clients around uh, their strategy and how they think about the future. Uh, I teach a module, as you've said, at various business schools called Strategic Thinking. Uh, and we do some scenario work, etc. All of my work, 99% of my personal portfolio uh, dried up in the space of 48 hours. I had oh. over 20 international engagements March. And mm. within 48 hours, I'll never forget the weekend. I haven't coined a name for the weekend yet, but blood comes to mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> it all dried up. Um, and, and that was, a, a, firstly, a real shock. Um, mm. Secondly, time to reflect and, and think about what is the real purpose of what I do and what we do. Mm. Fortunately, I guess, uh, a, a large part of our business, Lance, is, um, is aimed at dealing, actually developing new businesses, new groundbreaking, future-relevant businesses for clients. Mm. And so, interestingly, that part of the business was also impacted. Many CEOs with whom we were working said simply, sorry, guys, no bandwidth, no cash, got to focus on the crisis. I've got to watch my toes because there's things I'll stub them on around every corner. Mm. And so that part of the business also went into hibernation mode. Mm. But then there were some CEOs out there that said, wow, um, this is a really scary world. What I do know is, number one, when it ends, and it will, the world will never be entirely the same. Mm. 
Mm. Therefore, me and my executive team cannot think the same way. We cannot act the same way. We cannot think that what made us good in the pre-COVID world will still be relevant in the post-COVID world. Mm. So please, future come and work with us during this time. And of course, that was all done virtually. But engage us in strategic conversations uh, with thought leaders, deep subject matter experts, curated and facilitated, etc. But help us develop a new way of thinking that will allow us to stay relevant, indeed thrive in a post-COVID world. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, I've had a huge deletion in my diary. On the second, time to reflect on what is it that organizations need to really be doing. And of mm -hmm. course, how do I execute that from my desk in Cape Town? where my clients are far flung. And um, it's been fascinating. So, you know, like everyone, we've learned to do virtual conferences. Uh, but we've also learned that you can engage people virtually for, we've done one session, Lance, that took six hours on a Saturday. Mm. This particular CEO said, you know, my entire leadership team across four countries must engage and uh, they're happy to do it on a Saturday. Um, and, and we brought in, you know, an AI expert from San Francisco virtually. It was two in the morning for her, but she joined us. <laughs> we facilitated virtual breakaway rooms, each with their own facilitator. So the technology is absolutely there to, mm. to do these sessions. What's mm. changed of is you can't see the white of the eye. You can't see the perspiration as you walk up to an executive and challenge them with a real provocative question. That is a bit more difficult to virtually. But for the rest, it really works. Yes, in South Africa yesterday, it was Freedom Day, but for me, it was a normal working day. And I think that's what this working from home has like merged every day into one almost, if you don't control it. Um, so so you, you went through the same process then as many CEOs or C-level executives seem to have been going through, where it's like shock, horror, um, you know, the world is changing, and then how do we, how do we you know, approach the world? How do you absolutely? So those type of C levels, you, you say you've you've approached different ones, and ones that are just focusing on the crisis, and ones that are focusing on the future as well. How does that look? Yes. How, what advice would you give to you know C level people at this time? Look, I, th I think Lance, we're, we're now you know anything from four to eight weeks into the sort of COVID era, mm. and so the initial panic around wow, what does it mean? What do I do? How do I operate? I think the dust is beginning to settle. What many C-level uh, execs have discovered is that there's absolutely no resilience in their organization. So they've had to focus on, you know, furlough people, retrench people, shut down services, uh, contain costs, just to keep the, 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 the meter ticking, as it were. Mm. But I think that's one of the big lessons is number one, very little resilience in the system of modern business. It's all just in time, it's quarterly profits, it's lean and mean, uh, without giving thought to robustness, resilience. And of course, you know, people talk about COVID as a black swan. The black swan is defined as a massive event that's totally unexpected and changes the rules forever. Mm. I don't agree with that. Uh, we've mm. been talking about the likelihood of a pandemic for five years at least, and I'm mm. not the only one, you know, so yeah. it's been out there but we've chosen to ignore it because of what we've said is important. And that brings me to the second uh, insight I think many execs have had, is that they really have run organizations, and I'm not speaking for everyone, there are some amazing human leaders out there, mm. but many have run their companies without really deep understanding of their people, without uh, personal empathetic insights into how they live, who they are, what their challenges are. 
And that's been one of the most important issues for executives now and for leaders now is to really, really connect, but authentically and deeply with the people that make their businesses real and valuable and relevant. Mm. So post the immediate shock of, of cash flow, it's really, really getting to connect at a human level with the organization. And I think that for many, that's been a sort of a quite an aha moment. And for some execs, of course, quite difficult because they sit in their ivory tower, they look at Excel spreadsheets all day and they think they're really important because their diaries are jam-packed with meetings uh, and very rarely have the time to talk to the receptionist about you know, what's going on in, in his or her life uh, and how are clients reacting when they emerge from meeting rooms, et cetera, et cetera. So that's been a huge thing. And then for, for many executives is the realization that post-COVID, the world won't be the same mm. from many dimensions. So, so what's valuable in the world? You know, what do we put back into our lives post-COVID? What are the new business models? Of course, e-commerce, digitization, virtual operations, all of these are just components of that. But woven together, what is the story they're telling about the engagement model in a business? Um, how, how do you digitize, you know, a business? I think many companies are discovering wow, you know, we can do 80% of the, let's say, revenue targets that we had pre-COVID, but we're doing it at 60% of the fixed overhead cost. The mm. problem, of course, is they've still got the fixed overhead cost. <laughs> um, but it says, how do we redesign the model for a post-COVID world when we can engage differently? And if we get that right, we engage actually way more powerfully in many cases. Mm. So it, 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 I think the, the focus of executives is shifting from initial crisis survival mode into an insight and learning and understanding mode. And I think hopefully quite soon now, organizations are saying, right, now I need to get busy with designing what we in future world call our business of tomorrow. Mm. So the business of today is now kind of, at least it's, it's on a path. Uh, hopefully it's going to survive, but you know, what next? And it's that what next conversation, which is, which is so interesting at the moment. Uh, just to go back to your first point about leaders and their people, it's just amazing to see the world leaders and how they've responded. Like, you know, our, our president, Cyril Ramaphosa, seems to have responded with empathy and, and a clear action plan, while other world yeah. leaders, you know, particularly the biggest country in the world, <laughs> has almost <laughs> not had any empathy whatsoever. It's just amazing how, you know, you, people have responded to, let's say, President Ramaphosa as to, you know, the yeah. other president in the other country. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And... and, and <laughs> Well, look, I won't go down that road because I, I have some provocative thoughts around that. But <laughs> if, if, you, if you think about many of the countries that, that seem to be more successful at dealing with this period, they, they also have women leaders, which is quite fascinating. Mm. Um, and I haven't done the research on the correlation and what their actual decisions were, but it's really just an interesting observation. I think, you know, Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand comes to mind. Yes, it's a small country and it's a relatively small economy, et cetera. But she's been outstanding even way before COVID. If you take her reaction post the Christchurch shootings, I mean, it was astoundingly good. Um, she united a, a country in, in minutes of normal human empathetic behavior when she hugged that Muslim woman and, and just mm. expressed uh, solidarity and empathy and understanding. You know, I'll, I'll never forget a quote um, uh, a chap who'd immigrated into New Zealand said, you know, for 17 years I've been living here but never felt like a New Zealander. I felt that today for the first time. Mm. Um, the power of that is just exponential, you know. 
If you take back South African history, when Madiba wore, you know, Francois Pina's, uh, I never remember whether it's number six or number nine jersey on the field, such a small act of leadership, but the impact was exponential. Mm. And I think what the new world is, is offering leaders that get it right is the chance to make um, massive differences in their organizations through doing some very small things brilliantly. And those are not you know, massive algorithms that they need to understand. It's human behavior. Mm. So I'm really excited about the future. I mean, it's going to be tough and there's going to be lots of hardship as we will see in our country, you know, and as we are seeing in our country. Mm. But if we get the policies right, if, if leaders really think through what are those levers I need to pull to shape our future of our country in a positive way, not how do we go back to the pre-COVID way of doing things. I mean, South mm. Africa cannot go back to pre-COVID policies in any government department, be it tele telecommunications, be it commerce and industry, be it tourism, everything is going to change. Wow. If they get those policies right, mm. you know, we can do this thing. Well, let's talk about that, the, the, the world of the future or the near future. Um, and once again, President Ramaphosa did indicate this in, in one of his talks in that this is now an opportunity to reshape the economy or the new economy uh, and you know, put South Africa on a, a you know, solid growth projection um, for the future, just like you mentioned now. But getting to CEOs and organizations as well, how, how are you engaging with them to, to help them define their organizations for the future? Is that the understand, designing, and creating method that you follow? That's exactly it, Lance. I mean, we've distilled our entire philosophy and, and business approach into those three words. And by, by understanding, it's really understanding the context in which business takes place in the future. Now, this future is a, an amazing word. For some people in some industries, you know, 12 months is a long-term future and they have no clue what's going to happen. For other industries that are capitally intensive, long lead cycles, maybe seven to 10 years is, that, is the definition of future. My experience is take your mind into a time zone where you start having doubts about your own forecasting and prediction capability and accuracy. Uh, typically, that's between five and seven years out, right? So in that time zone, you don't know all the answers with a high level of confidence. What does the world look like in that time zone? How are people behaving? What are the technologies that we're using? What has become uh, commoditized and, and ubiquitous and therefore has no pricing power? What are those things that are scarce that people will pay a premium to experience uh, or to use or to, or to own? Um, so what shapes the landscape in which business takes place? So you start at the macro level, you know, what, what, what do countries look like? Um, what does global um, climate look like? Let's talk about energy. Let's talk about those big things that shape. And then to understand what the marketplace of tomorrow will look like through a customer lens. Again, why will they pay you? What will they pay you a premium for? And if that's the landscape and if that's the marketplace in that marketplace, how would you design your ideal business, ignoring for the moment your present operation, mm, your structure, mm. your balance sheet, your hierarchy, your products, etc. In that marketplace, what would the market find really, really exciting? If you look at it through a capital markets perspective, Lance, you could say to yourself, why do some companies even today have a massive premium over their profit or revenue? We call that the expectation premium uh, or the innovation premium. In other words, in, for listed companies, 
It's the value that investors are prepared to pay you today, not because of your current revenue, but mm. because of what they expect you to create in the future. Now, a classic example, of course, is Tesla and Elon Musk, right? He's hardly made a profit ever, but he's worth more than most car companies in the US. Mm. How does that work? Mm. Well, it's clearly the capital markets view, rightly or wrongly, but it's their considered view that Tesla will out-innovate any other company in that space. So investors are prepared to pay you upfront for that future revenue, which they think you're going to create. Now, when you do the analytics, it gets really interesting because when you look at organizations, um, you know, you, you find some companies are in fact worth less on their uh, valuation than their current profits indicate, which means the market says you guys have got no chance of ever innovating or executing. And so we should buy you and break you up now and sell off the pieces because the whole is worth less than the sum of the pieces. Mm. Um, and so it's to get leaders to understand how to create that future relevance, ignoring the constraints of today. You know, when companies go away, Lance, and they do strategy weekends, I chuckle because, you know, everyone works like mad until lunchtime on a Friday, then they all jump in a car and they hair off to a game lodge and they have a, a dinner and a good wine that night and Saturday morning dawns and they're now going to go and do their long-term strategy. Mm. Uh, first of all, they're exhausted and, you know, and hungover. The second <laughs> The second thing is they open the, the, the famous board deck and one of the first documents they read is a SWOT analysis. Uh, and all that does is it embeds in their already tired minds the memory of their organizational capacity yesterday. What mm. on earth you know, thinks, do they think that makes it important when we're having a five-year conversation about what will make us successful in the future? And so what we do is, is work with teams to develop, firstly, that understanding of the future context. Mm. Um, and, and we're very specific. I think, you know, if you look at the number of consulting reports and strategy documents that don't get successfully implemented, it's a scary number. And the reason, to a large extent, is because the outcome isn't owned at an emotional level by the leadership team. They've got to really get goosebumps when they read their future strategy. They've got to own it. They've got to take accountability for overcoming the challenges and constraints that a good execution is going to come across. But you don't do that unless you own it. So it's really important not to tell leadership teams what to do. It's so important to get them to want to do it themselves mm. because they believe in it at an emotional level. You know, the Excel justification and analysis and, and so on comes later. But unless you ignite that human spirit of ambition and desire, then, you know, execution is, a, is, is going to get bogged down in hierarchy, corporate terrorists will stop it, all those sort of normal constraints. You know, if you're excited, Lance, about a, a really uh, powerful idea, not even your balance sheet will stop you from finding a way to, to get it done. And I think yeah. what COVID is in teams is, you know, where, where, you, where you have to get something done to survive. It's amazing how creative people can be. Yeah, I suppose that that's the the purpose. Then, like you know, that you'll exactly. achieve something if if your staff and your board agree with the goal. And it, it sounds like you know systems thinking where you you identify where you are, and then you identify other you know a future state, and then you design a roadmap in a way to get from where you are to the future state that you envision uh, and design well, for yourself. I want to add a tweak to that. The, the question we ask is not what should you do? Because the moment you say to a leader, what should you do? Subliminally, in the back of their mind, these questions normally crop up. And I'm in no particular order. 
what's in it for me? What does mm. it mean to my retirement and my share options? What yeah. about the chairman? Will the board approve? Will the bank, you know, will our balance sheet support it? And all of those issues arise. So we ignore that, Lance. What we work with uh, leaders in doing is getting them excited about that outcome. So let's say a five-year outcome. They get goosebumps when they read it. Then we say to them, how did you do it? And suddenly, when you ask it from a point of inspiration and excitement, when you say, how did we do it? Let's go back to April or May 2020. Do you remember those days post-COVID-19? Well, you know, it's now 2025. We've gone through COVID-20 and 2021. Here we are. We've built this incredibly valuable, powerful, exciting business. What did we do back in May 2020? What did we do in December 2020? What were our key milestones in 2021? How did we survive 2022? And so you ask the question, it's the execution question, but you ask it from a future sense of having succeeded in building this aspirational future. And then all those personal questions about what's in it for me and will the board approve don't apply because the first thing you say is, well, we got the board equally excited about the outcome, about the aspiration. Wow. Okay. And the second thing we did is we persuaded our investors. So who persuaded them? What was the message, right? And so you build that execution roadmap from the future backwards. Mm -hmm. And that's what we talk about when we say strategy from the future. Mm. It's not from the present because the present is full of constraint. And many of them, Lance, I must emphasize are absolutely real. Mm. But to free the leadership mind from that burden of today's issues, you've got to take them into an exciting future place. Get mm. them to understand it. Get them to buy into it. Get them to design who they want to be in that world. And then we come back to the harsh reality of building the execution roadmap. I just want to ask you one follow-up question, and then I'll ask a practical question with you on how to engage with future world and yourself going forward if companies want to. But what, we, yes. what I've seen is that in our, my community that I'm part of, OpenEXO, we've got something called a 10-week sprint. And this 10-week sprint helps you to design, you know, edge initiatives and refine your core processes, et cetera. But what I've seen happening in the last few weeks is that there's been accelerated sprints um, come up, you know, emerging. So now there's a, a five-day sprint instead of a 10-week sprint because <laughs> like, or, you know, organizations want to do something now. Like they're, they're in crisis mode. They want to have a future and they want to put something together in five days. Are, are you seeing that as well? I mean, in the past, have your engagements been longer than they are now? Or, and are you happy with a short engagement or do you want to have more of a, a long-term you know, journey with, with an organization? I guess I'm going to sound a bit like an economist and say, you know, on the one hand and on the other hand. <laughs> so I think if the issue is around the survival in the short term, sprints get shorter. Mm. And what's interesting is I, I've not noticed that they get necessarily materially worse or weaker. Mm. Uh, very often, you know, you spend 20% of the time to arrive at 80% of the answer. Mm. Um, and so short-term sprints are great, but they are there in my view for short-term survival, business of today, optimization. Yeah. Uh, that is totally different to building a, a long-term relevant future. And so, sure, in some respects, our strategy of building understanding, then designing the ideal future, and then building the execution roadmap takes place over six months. Some clients have said to us, can we please do it over the next three to four months? 
But the important thing, Lance, is you don't rewire the way a brain works in a weekend. Mm. And that's why we're so against these sort of once a year strategy offsite weekends, because you take yesterday's brain to talk about the future with yesterday's way of thinking and processing information. The reason we take, you know, uh, a couple of months at least is that we have a divergent thinking process where we bring in some really powerful content and we want there to be at least two weeks between these sessions because we're taking you into unexplored debates that you don't have typically in the boardroom, all re relevant to your future landscape of your particular industry. Mm. But we try and get you to think differently about the dots. You know, I, <laughs> I often say to a CEO when we start this process, I guarantee your guys are going to come to you after the second session and say, please, can we stop this nonsense? It's not relevant. Can we take some decisions? Mm. And I say to the leader, if they don't say that to you, then we're not pushing them widely enough. If what we're doing with you is so obvious that they just want to get to decisions, mm. then we're not pushing them widely enough. By the fourth session, suddenly they start connecting dots between this idea, that conversation, this piece of information, this technology, and then their brain starts processing information differently. The test for me is, do you read a newspaper differently? Will you start reading after the third or fourth session different articles in a magazine or a newspaper? Because you're now looking for different signals that are future relevant. I've often <laughs> come back and the one exec said to me one day, he said, Anton, I must tell you, my wife says, I must please give you a hug and say thank you. I said, okay, well, keep the hug. <laughs> you know, <laughs> why does she want you to thank me? And she says, you know, my partner says that I'm much more interesting at dinner parties nowadays because <laughs> my mind is reading different things. And, and it's then with that new perspective on thinking that you can then have a proper strategy around the future conversation. So you Great. rewire the brain to think differently and you can't do that in a five-day sprint. Now, how do organizations, I, I imagine there's one or two people listening to this and they, they want to engage with you further. Uh, how would they engage with Future World or, or yourself to you know, find out how to proceed uh, with you? Well, Lance, I mean, our website is uh, www.futureworld.org, not .com. Okay. And uh, I'm on email, LinkedIn, Twitter, and uh, you know, most of the social media platforms. Mm. So I, my home is in Cape Town, but as I said, my, my field of operation is the, the planet. Mm. <laughs> I'm not sure when I'll get to see much of the planet in the future. But. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, we were, like I said, we were celebrating Freedom Day yesterday, but all locked in our own homes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I had conversations with some folk in India and a team in London. Um, so, yeah, Lance, email works for me too. It's anton at futureworld.org uh, or the website and connect with me or any one of my partners. But, uh, you know, our, our passion is helping leaders create future relevant businesses and all the attendant work that sort of surrounds that. Well, it's been fascinating talking to you, Anton. So thank you so much for taking the time. It's been a real pleasure. Great pleasure. That's a great pleasure, Lance. Thank you for the conversation. Good and luck out there. Thank you. Uh, I hope you, the listener, found this as interesting and useful as I did. If you'd like to contact me, then please do. My email address is lance at ideastorm.co.za and the website is www.ideastorm.co.za and I'll have all of Anton's details in the show notes that you can go and have a look at and please contact Anton. Please contact me. So thanks. Until next week, goodbye.